Welcome into the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I am your host, Jack Anderson, and today on the show we have PT extraordinaire Zach Couples. Zach has been awesome uh, with me the last uh, couple of years, exchanging emails about uh, some of my career aspirations and then also helping me with some various ailments that I've had. Um, and I was so blown away by his uh, testing protocols and assessments that he was using. Uh, to diagnose my issues and then to provide some practical solutions to help my uh, my issues. Uh, I was so impressed with him that I, I really wanted to bring him on the show and uh, talk about some of the, the things that he's been doing in his career, how he's grown and developed these practices um, and really become probably one of the most effective uh, practitioners and intelligent human beings in the field. Um, on the show, we talk a lot about practical solutions for strength and conditioning coaches uh, for assessment and um, programming design based on some of the assessments that we're seeing. Um, again, obviously in large groups, it's very difficult to structure some of these more uh, complex details. So if we can find a way to simplify the process and, and uh, bucket people into specific groups, uh, it makes the, the process a lot easier to restoring variability and functionality to people before they begin to do some of the, the bigger movements that we might have for them in a session. Uh, Zach and I also discuss uh, his rap career. It's a blossoming rap career, and uh, it's one that you should be following intently. And then furthermore, you can find Zach at his website, ZachCouples.com. He uh, was gracious enough to offer a 10% discount to anyone through June 1st that wants to undergo a movement analysis or assessment with him. And uh, all you got to do is tell him that I sent you along. That is Jack. That's me from the Upper Left Performance. So thanks a lot to Zach for the hookup on that. Without further ado, though, let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's talk with Zach Couples. Zach, thanks so much, man, for, uh, for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Um, I mean, first off, we, we have to discuss uh, the latest Lucas Joyner because I know that you probably liked it probably even more than I did. But It is currently my album of the year. Um, I mean, he just absolutely crushed it. The... The energy is good from start to finish. The material is second to none, and this is just flow is is otherworldly. So, uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, he's gonna be tough to beat. Like, I my struggle is between that album and then also the new Thundercat album in terms of the best two things that have come out of twenty. So, are you a J Cole fan? Because isn't he's he's dropping a new one this year too? Oh, I did not know that. Yes, yeah, so I like think J. Cole. he is. I think he is. So for me, like, I'm going in with the bias that that will be my album of the year, even though I haven't heard one note of it, but, but we'll see. <laughs> so. he, he's very talented. He's a good lyricist, yeah, a good producer, too. So, yeah. yeah, I like are you, What are you doing over there with, like, you were doing something with rapping the other day, I saw. Like, what are you, what's, what's going on over there? Well, I, uh, I used to rap, actually, like in PT school and college. And I would make beats as well. So I, I kind of did it all. And I just, I wanted, it's something I wanted to get back into because it's a nice creative outlet. And so I've just been making some, some beats here and there. Um, actually, so fun factoid, if you listen to, you've listened to Mike Robertson's podcast. Of course, of course, yeah. You, you know, do you know his intro music? Like, yeah, is that yours? So the, <laughs> Both of them were, yeah. So I don't know if you remember the old piano one where it was like the doo doo doo. Yeah, yeah. That was me, and the new one is me too. The 
like where it's kind of like that playground sound. Yeah, it's that's the best one actually. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, and and a lot of his fillers are me as well. Dude, he doesn't give you any shine. What is what is his deal? <laughs> he well, someone reached. It was the funniest thing. Someone on some Facebook group or something was saying, Mike, where did you get your intro music? It sounded like you went through the projects in Indianapolis. You went under police tape and went to the basement and just like picked up the grimiest sound ever. And that's, that's when I did get a shout out from Mike. So. Okay. Okay. So but he has acknowledged it. All right. That's good. He has acknowledged it, but it's, uh, Hey, I'll, uh, here's a relevant example. So in the nineties, Janet Jackson released uh, the, I think it was the, the red velvet or rope velvet, velvet rope album. Mm-hmm. And she had this song on there that was got till it's gone, which had the Joni Mitchell sample, you know, Oh no, I've seen it all, but you don't know what you got till it's gone. So that song's really good. No one knows this, but it was produced by the late great Jay Dilla. And he asked for no credit on this. And I mean, Janet was big. She was huge in the 90s. So I I like to think of my production of Mike Robertson's intro music as like Jay Dilla. I'm cool being <laughs> on the sly with that. I don't oh, need too gosh. many people knowing that the big Z does that. So all right, all right. We won't put it in the show notes then. We'll save that. Um, <laughs> um uh, so one of the, the big reasons I wanted to bring you on today um was to talk a little bit about assessments. And I think the overarching theme for me, I was I was, you know, kind of shot you a few topics and was thinking about this a lot throughout the week. For me, I always think, okay, I'm meeting someone new. I need to impress them. Like, you know, I need them to like me. All these things are going into the first meeting with this person. And um, I've started to realize, especially earlier in my career, that I was kind of going in like expecting to see things or looking for certain, like I was going in with like a preconceived notion of of what things are going to look like. And I think that was very, I, I don't know how you're looking at your assessments when you go in, but like not looking at it a blank slate for me, I feel like I, I, I was doing it wrong. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that kind of overarching concept. In terms of making assumptions about... Yeah, it's like, you know, you just go and you're like, oh, I'm going to see this and this person because this is what everybody does. And, um, you know, uh, or every most people are this, uh, or, you know, most people are stuck in extension, so I need to see this. And I feel like I was just looking at things from a very closed-minded perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's like if you buy a new car, all of a sudden you start to see that everyone has that car. (laughs) And I think, and that's, that's a normal thing with humans. Humans are, we, we exist and we survive by pattern recognition. This is a thing. It's like if you got mugged in a dark alley Anytime that you go by or you see something that reminds you of that dark alley again, you're going to be on high alert and it's a protective mechanism. And that can be useful in some instances, but the problem with pattern recognition is we are biased creatures. We are irrational creatures and the patterns that we recognize don't always match what reality is. So there's a great book actually by Scott Adams who goes into this. Scott Adams, the, the writer of, Dilbert. He's like a yeah. modern day philosopher too, but his book loser think goes into detail in terms of how we utilize pattern recognition, but 
it's one of those things that can really screw us if we only rely on that. Um, so I, I think it's, Jack, it's totally normal for you to, to have these preconceived notions because it makes what really is a complex system somewhat simpler. That's yeah. the purpose of models. The purpose of models is to take something as complex as movement, or if you want to go even bigger, as complex as a human being, and try to simplify it in a manner that allows us to make sound decisions to reach whatever the goal is. Um, um, so, so then for you, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had a session with you and, and kind of seen how you've done things. And then I've heard you speak on things that, that you took me through. Um, what's your mindset going into someone who's brand new? Um, that I feel like you, you definitely have an edge over most people that are doing assessments for some reason. And I just kind of wanted to like hear your thought process. Well, I think one reason I might have an edge is because I failed a lot. I've seen a lot of people. I've been in practice for a long time. But I also have done my best to simplify what we're seeing into two general strategies. And if we think about it from a movement perspective, we really only have two strategies available. If I bend and I straighten my elbow, if we just look at the bicep, the bicep is either doing a concentric contraction or an eccentric contraction or elongation. And there's not really much else that the bicep can do. Even with an isometric, there's still going to be a push towards concentric or a push towards eccentric. What if we look at all movement as the same thing? Or if we have this global strategy available of someone who's biased more towards concentric or biased more towards eccentric. And it's a matter of seeing movement in that way and understanding, well, what's going to happen with various movements ranging from like a squat to going overhead that would require some, or which of those movements is more on the concentric side of the equation versus eccentric side of the equation. And what I think, what I think makes it the easiest way to stratify movement into those two categories is by looking at one's torso or what I would call the ventral cavity and looking at the most basic expression of that concentric eccentric alternation, which would be breathing. Because as you, when you take a breath of air in, your body in general moves towards an eccentric strategy to account for the increase in, in air volume. And then when you got to get the air out, it moves towards a more concentric strategy to squeeze the air. Um, and, and that's really what I've tried to pare down the assessment to. Now, obviously it gets a little bit more complex into that, but you can apply that principle into all types of movement. For example, there's when you breathe in, which would be an eccentric strategy, there's certain things that your pelvis has to do. Namely, it has to posteriorly tilt or, or tip backwards. Well, what movements do we do in the gym that involves that posterior tilt? A squat would be a prime example of that, which is why when I assessed you, Jack, I looked at a squat to see how well you do ex expressing that strategy. What about with an exhalation? In that case, the pelvis does the opposite. It has to dump forward. Well, what, what movements in the gym do we do where the pelvis relatively dumps forward? Any hinge action would be an example of that. You touching your toes would be an example of that. 
and so it's just looking at that mechanism and seeing how many different ways can I assess that the, the respiratory mechanism and apply it to a movement context in this case, Jim. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's beautifully said. Um, I, I think, so, I mean, I've heard you speak on this a little bit, but I'd love for you to just elaborate a little more with in terms of, I know that the squat or I'm sorry, the hip flexion test and a, a squat test and a toe touch are kind of three of your, 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 your go-tos. Um, when you're, when you're watching that, what's kind of, cueing you in as to what, what person might be more inhalation or more exhalation biased? The, the knee to chest or hip flexion test is probably the best expression of both inhalation bias versus exhalation bias. Because with the toe touch, it, because it's a standing movement, it's dynamic, there's lots of ways you can cheat. Um, it, you, have to, you have to know more to get more information out of it. And same thing with a squat. So with a, a knee to chest or a hip flexion test, I think it's the easiest to control a lot of variables. With the leg that's, with the knee that's going towards the ch chest, the hip flexion side, that side is, is assessing the ability to counter nutate the sacrum or posteriorly tilt the pelvis, which is associated with inhalation. At the hip, there's about 120 degrees of hip flexion available. If I bring the knee completely to the chest, I'm going beyond that. So there's a relative movement of posterior tilting on that side. Because if you could bring your knee to your chest, assuming you're not this huge ripped or an obese person, it's probably going to be about 140 plus degrees of, of hip flexion. On the down leg, the leg where the hips extended, you have the exact opposite thing. I have more nutation or anteriorly tilting of the sacrum for the same reasons. If I can keep the hip extended to zero degrees or slightly beyond because of the relative motion, the hip has to, to tilt anteriorly. And it's a, it's a great way to express both of those movements. Now, on both sides, there's lots of ways people can cheat if on the hip flexion side, the knee moves out towards the shoulder, or you see the foot turn inward, those would be compensatory strategies that the body is using to um, move around the inability to counter nutate the sacrum or posteriorly tilt the pelvis. On the extended side or the straight leg side, if you see the hip go into flexion, or you see the leg turn out into external rotation, those would be other compensatory measures you might you might look at. And if, so if someone exhibits those things, then you know on the side that they're cheating or the side that they're limited on, you need to focus on activities to improve that, those types of movement qualities. I see. No, no, that's, that's really good. So just for clarification on my end, if we have, for example, on the, the hip flexion side, um, the, the foot moving in or the knee moving out, that that's a strategy that's giving them artificial range of motion, correct? Like that's giving them more hip degrees of hip, hip flexion. Yeah. So what they end up doing is in that case, they're abducting the femur. So they don't have to go into that deep degree of hip flexion. Okay. Cause what's interesting is it's, even though it looks like external rotation, depending on the degree of, 
um, flexion that you are in, it actually is more of an internal rotation based position. If you look, there's a research article, I'll send it to you so you can link it in the show notes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if you look at a powerlifting squat and you look at what the hip is doing in a powerlifting squat, they go a super wide stance and then they descend down. Well, at the range that they end their squat, the femurs are actually in abduction and internal rotation. Yeah. And it's really the same thing with this knee to chest test. If I move the femur way out of the, the sagittal plane, I'm going into abduction, but then based on the way that the hips articulate as I go and approach, you know, 90 to 100 degrees of hip flexion, um, you, you'd get more internal rotation happening. And so it's a, it's a compensatory mechanism. Ideally, with that knee to chest test, when I hit terminal hip flexion and beyond, I should be exhibiting more external rotation of the hip. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. And same, yeah. And with the down leg, I should have the opposite. If I'm keeping the hip in full extension and I don't move out of that plane, I should have concomitant adduction and internal rotation. And so that's why if you see the leg spin out, they're using a compensatory strategy that's not in the same vein. Yeah. Now, when, when you, so you see somebody kind of go through these things, right? And I, lo I love this test. Like for me, I, I, I really, the more I look into this, like, the more I think if we have a myriad of assessments, especially from this perspective, like I think it just takes up time and doesn't really tell us anything new. So I love like the simplicity of this one. It makes a ton of sense, especially as a strength conditioning coach where this is not really what I, my gig is, you know, um, when I use this, you're seeing some of these compensations, all you're essentially then doing is going, okay, like if this guy's more inhalation, uh, inhalation based uh we might need an exhal exhalation based intervention from a strength and condition conditioning standpoint correct yes yeah and really jack you don't if you know you're listening in and you, you don't have no idea what me and jack are talking about you could look at any movement that you do in the gym and apply this concept if if i am utilizing an inhalation-based strategy, because I had mentioned a squat before, you should see more vertical displacement of the pelvis. So the pelvis should travel straight up and down. If I'm using an exhalation-based strategy, you're going to see more horizontal displacement. So the pelvis is going to go backwards and forwards. And if you, if you don't change a thing about your programming, but you just look at how people move in, in this vein, you could totally see if someone is doing a lot more of an exhalation strategy or more of an inhalation strategy. And generally most people when they're stressed are going to be pushed towards an exhalation strategy. You're going to see, you know, the pelvis dump forward. They're going to have a huge arch in their back on the hinge. When they do a squat, the, the, the chins are going to stay vertical and they're going to shoot back. Um, so most people more often than not are probably going to need more of an inhalation uh, strategy, at least in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and I've noticed the same thing. I mean, having been around countless athletes, I mean, that's, that's what we're seeing more often than not. Now, uh, I've seen Justin Moore post on this. I think it's very interesting. I like it a lot. Obviously, when we look at this performance health continuum, if we're going to be, for example, a strength athlete or just an athlete that thinks squatting a, a you know, crap ton of weight is going to be helpful, 
we're probably going to see more of that strategy where we have horizontal displacement of the pelvis. Um, how concerning is that for you? And again, I know it probably depends on the person, but let's, you know, we can hopefully speak of generalities. Um, how concerning is that for you? And are, are, are you going to, how are you going to sprinkle in some of that more vertical displacement and inhalation strategy? It's only a, some of those adaptations are useful for the sport at hand, but there's always consequences. If I am going to be a strength athlete, I need to be able to produce a, an aggressive concentric contraction. And so it would make total sense that you would probably develop somewhat of a bias towards that if you practice it more. Uh, just as a gymnast would likely benefit from more of an eccentric strategy. They need that crazy flexibility to be able to do gymnastic things. But if I bias towards any extreme for a long period of time, you're probably going to run into some issues in, in other areas of your life from a health perspective. Like it's, it's not good to have from a health perspective to have minimal movement available at your joints. I mean, that's what happens with osteoarthritis. It's also not good to have a crazy amount of hypermobility available. I mean, you look at on, you know, on the flip side, there's a lot of cardiac issues that could be involved, uh, mental health, risk for autoimmune, lots of different things. Um, so I think from a health perspective, the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle. But if you're going to be going towards either of those extremes, because that's what warms your heart, you, you should at least have your accessories or you should sprinkle in something that brings you towards the middle throughout your programming. So if I'm a, a power lifter, I'm probably going to do a lot of bench squat and dead because that's what I have to do to be good at my sport. But perhaps I, some of the accessory movements that I'm incorporating in my programming or the warm up or things like that might touch on some of these other strategies or the opposing strategies, just so I can maintain uh, my movement options, uh, keep healthy and, uh, you know, keep performing for a long period of time. And same thing with the gymnast, it would probably behoove a gymnast to lift some, some weight and, and potentially utilize some, some hinging based strategies or deadlifts or things of that nature. So they can maintain some degree of concentric tension. So they're not at risk for injury either. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I, so when we talk about like sprinkling stuff in, this is where I'm sure you've had a ton of interventions that you're using with people for this type of stuff. How much of it makes a difference and how much do we need? Because I know that like some of these interventions can be tedious. Um, I don't mind doing them like the ones you gave me. I don't mind doing them at all, but there are some days where I'm like, I don't feel like doing that for 10 minutes, <laughs> like one of those types of things. So I know personally, I could say that some of these very little work has paid off tremendously for me and like my performance goals. Uh, is that the case for a lot of people or like how much of this do we have to be doing? I, I think it's person dependent. I'll give you an example that doesn't involve movement. I just thought of this on my walk actually this morning. <laughs> so best thinking during a so, walk, man. Uh, absolutely. So let's say your goal is to have a, um, good looking body, whatever that means to you. And you're going to use diet to help you with that. Once you achieve that good looking body, like 
do you ask yourself, okay, well, well, how long do I have to eat healthy in order to maintain this body? I don't know. <laughs> right. I mean, you probably have to have some semblance of still eating whole foods and real food. Uh, but you might be able to tolerate going off the wagon here and there and be okay. I think the same, we have to, we have to consider the same principles with uh, some of the interventions that we're talking about. How many, how often does the power lifter have to do resets or to what extent do they have to incorporate some of these inhalation based strategies into their programming? And it's going to totally be dependent on that person. How long can they tolerate moving a lot of heavy weight before breaking down or losing depth in their squat or whatever is their rate limiting step and how much do they have to throw into their programming? I could fathom some person just doing a bunch of stuff in their warm up and be okay. I could also fathom another person where that's not enough and they have to throw a lot of other accessory based movements that, you know, they're, they're, you know, B1, B3 and their C1, C2 involving more of these strategies in order to be healthy. Another person might have to take a, a full block to focus on this stuff throughout their training year. It's really hard to say. I, I think the answer is you have to look at what's your goal, what do you need to attain that goal, and what do you need to do to stay healthy to be able to continually pursue that goal. And, and then with, with that framework in mind, you would design interventions that would work around that. Just like if if your goal isn't to have a six pack all year round, then you might not need to incorporate intermittent fasting throughout the year. But if it is, you might have to, and that's okay. You just have to, you have to think about what your goal is and what's the best way that you can get to that goal. Now um, I talked to a lot of people about kind of what we're discussing here and some of these interventions and uh, you know, the traditional <clears throat> mechanisms to feel better are usually you know, foam rolling or things like that. And those are things that I think like athletes now really resonate with. Um, but I feel athletes general, even general pop kind of now, um, when we kind of introduce some of this stuff, for example, like I've helped some people out with a few things uh, using, you know, similar type stuff that we're talking about here. They, I could tell them like trying to connect the dots and sometimes I do a better job than others of, of connecting those dots. But I was wondering, like, for, do you have some, some solid examples of, like, case studies or someone you worked with where this stuff makes a huge impact? Like, you're seeing a big difference. Like, I've experienced it for myself, but just for listeners that maybe aren't quite sure, like, what all this means. And it's like voodoo shit or something like that, you know? Yeah, I, I can think of three relevant examples. So, one, one person would be someone who is post-rehab and they're just getting back into the gym and they want to do so safely you want to explore as many different movements as you possibly can. You don't want to bias yourself towards any one extreme. So establishing a movement foundation where you can move your body in all directions, i.e. being able to express both of these strategies. I think that's a prime place. Uh, I think if you are just getting into weights, this would also be a prime place. Like if you are an untrained person, you don't, you don't need to use the bazooka for a job that could be done just fine with a pistol. And I, I, I think to apply that to someone who's just getting into weight training, please take advantage of your beginner gains. You probably don't, you might not need to back squat for the first year. If you could just get a, a similar training effect with, 
with a goblet squat done well. Uh, so that's another group of people who I think benefit from these types of interventions, just exploring a lot of different movements and getting really good at the basics and the fundamentals. And then the last one would be, and this is who I see a lot of are fitness professionals who have gone down the route of powerlifting or bodybuilding, or they've been training really hard and they get dinged up. And it's, it's a good idea to scale back, focus on the fundamentals, get that, that broad movement palette that you could choose many different things from and, and, you know, take a break from specificity, go towards the general, and then you can go back to specifics as needed. Uh, I, you know, I, of course, this is my bias, but I really think that these are movements and strategies that anyone could benefit from depending on where they're at and what their goals are. I know it's probably multifactorial, but the results that you're getting from people and like doing some of these interventions to kind of maybe pull them back to the health side, for example. Um, So like a prime example, I'd be doing just some sort of inhalation based, either resets or vertical displacement with a, with a squat variation. What, what to you is changing for them that's causing them maybe to be pain-free or to express more movement? Is it, the repetitions themselves and, and the motor learning that's coming with it and the kinesthetic awareness, or is it maybe more of a physiological change that's happening? Um, and I'm sure it's both, but just kind of like maybe tell me what's going on from both those perspectives for you. I think it's probably both. With, with what I see when I give people these interventions is we see ranges of motion that their body should be able to do but can't come back. And if you have heard of the concept of movement variability, well, for those who haven't, what that basically is, is when you're performing a movement, if it's done well, even if it looks the same on the outside, on the inside, there should be subtle differences that your body does with each, each movement. And the greater amount of variability you have in this context, generally the healthier you are. Um, because you don't really overload any specific areas. You're constantly, you have the ability to fine tune because you can go out of a, a range that you're normally performing in. So it's, it's a good thing. And there's research out there showing that if you don't have enough variability, that can be an increased risk for injury. And if you have too much variability, that can be an increased risk for injury. I think one component of attaining that variability is having the requisite joint range of motion throughout your body to be able to move in and out of those ranges. For example, if you don't have any hip mobility whatsoever, your amount of options that you have to choose from when you're performing any type of task is, is reduced. So if you can increase those options available, namely restore the normal joint range of motion that your body should have, that's probably beneficial. And that's well, I can't, I don't have things to measure, measure physiological processes. I do have range of motion testing that is available that I can measure. And it seems that when people focus on improving these qualities, the range of motion changes and they feel better. And that's really the big thing that I'm seeing. If you have access to more range of motion in your body, not, not beyond physiological norms, so not, not to the point of hypermobility, it allows you to do more things from a movement perspective. It allows you to, to choose a, a, a wide variety of places that you could specialize in. 
And it's when we don't have that ability to, to choose that I think it runs into people run into issues. Yeah. And, I, and just anecdotally for me, I mean, my issue uh, with, with sprinting was try, I, you know, at least from what I perceive getting into internal rotation of the hip and acceleration was doable for me, but it's limited and, and it hurt, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and since I've been working with you, like I could definitely tell that that's not so much of an issue anymore. I can access, I don't know if it's more range of motion, but I can definitely access the same range of motion, but I can access it pain-free and it's just, everything is better because of that. And I was, I was wondering if that's, you know, in your opinion, more of like a, a structural change or, um, you know, again, hard to say, but, but it just interests me. Like, cause I, I wonder if it's like, if it's too bold of us to say we are like changing structurally what's going on with some of these interventions, you know? Probably to some degree, you look at, at Wolf's law, you know, if you're, imparting forces that you're not normally used to doing in your body because your, your motion has changed. I could totally see yeah. structural changes being a thing. Now to what, a, what degree it probably depends on what's, what adaptability you have within the, your body structure period. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely things that change. Like I, I even look at myself just cause I've done a lot of different things. Um, and you look at like my facial profile over the years, that's most certainly, changed it's definitely different um so i mean bones can grow differently they can adapt just like muscles just like all of our tissues um it probably takes a bit more time but yeah i mean we humans are plastic we have the ability to to change to morph to adapt and i think that probably happens over the long haul with all of our tissues yeah no that's that's kind of what i was getting at there because uh, one thing I've I've tried to really be more cognizant of recently is that, especially as a strength coach, like we just tend to get so bogged down in muscles and, and, you know, what we can do with them. And I, I just feel like the more I think about things, like it's just so short sighted uh, because there's so many things dictating the position of muscles. Like we were talking about with concentric and eccentric and a lot of it has to do with some of these other structures. It all works together there. The only reason we have muscles is because we've separated them out on a cadaver and um, have determined them. Because like, I mean, I've, I've, I've dissected a few cadavers in my day and you can't really tell the difference between things until you get the scalpel there, you use your fingers and you separate stuff. So it's, your body is one unit that is interconnected and works together. And uh, I think it's, I think it's useful to learn how the body works by separating it into specific structures or systems, but it's also myopic and limiting in a sense as well. Yeah. And I think that's, that's for, for strength and conditioning, at least in, in the people I talk to and everything, I, I, you know, some people are on board with this and, and others are not so much. And if, if we can't start relating things back, I think we're just missing a huge piece of the picture. And then on the flip side of that, we're not, transmitting maybe the best messages or, or practices to our athletes and and you can tell when that's the case you know yeah absolutely um so practically speaking now we've kind of broken it again very simple terminology between exhale and inhale bias um let's just kind of operate with i guess the the assumption we're working with maybe a more performance-based individual that's lacking some of this variability um 
you know, and I, I, you could even see that I'm sure in gen pop, just based on the stressors that are occurring in their lives as well. Um, what, what are maybe some, some basic interventions again, hard to personalize things here, but let's say we're in a strength and conditioning coach working. I was a d director of division three school, 500 athletes. Uh, my last job, I was with 600 military members. Like it, it, we cannot assess all of them. We kind of have to try to bucket things. And, um, a lot of it, it can be, I feel like at least from my, my end of the spectrum can be biased into, or can be bucketed into that. We need some more vertical displacement and we need a little more awareness of what's going on uh, with the pelvis, orient them to, to reestablish some sagittal plane competency, so on and so on. What are some easy strategies maybe for a strength and conditioning practitioner to utilize based on maybe having the simple test in place and then doing something actionable with it? Yeah, I, I think um, if you don't, if you're working in big groups like that, it, it's probably unrealistic to be able to assess a bunch of people, even need a chest. Like, I mean, you could look at like a toe touch to see if someone has exhalation capabilities in a full squat. Um, but if you're new to this, that's probably un, unreasonable. I think it's pretty safe to assume that most pe people need some degree of inhalation restoration or eccentric stuff. Um, so anything you can do that, that creates vertical displacement of the pelvis is going to be useful. And things I like that are simple, you don't even need to like coach the breathing necessarily that I would get nuts into. Um, any type of rolling is really good. I think there's some merit to some of the segmental rolling that you, you get from like your FMS, SFMA stuff, but also like somersaults, forward rolls, backward rolls. There's a move that I have that I like called the drunken turtle. Roll. I love that That's, one. That's my favorite yeah. of the three you gave me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really good move. And it, and it's literally like the bottom of a squat. I mean, that's why I gave it to you is because you can't get there. So I'm going to cheat a way to get there. And basically it, what the move entails is you're bringing your knees to your chest and you're just rolling backwards and forwards and moves like that are really good. They're fun fun and they're easy to incorporate into a program. Um, and, and then the other thing I would say you consider is really work on coaching a full squat and not, not like a back squat. I'm, I'm talking like ass to grass, the pelvis is tucked underneath neath you, you're shooting your knees forward and dropping down into a squat. Think more like the squats you see from an Olympic lifter when they're training versus a power lifter. They're very different. They look different and they have much more vertical displacement than a power lifter would do. I think if you did those things alone and, you know, in terms of variations from squatting that I like, I like any type of goblet, uh, a low goblet where the, instead of having the kettlebell in front of your head, it's like closer to your chest um, or zercher. I think those are vastly underutilized, but effective methods for, for teaching someone to squat. Um, ramping any squat. So making sure the heels are elevated makes it a lot easier to create that vertical displacement. I really think for the overwhelming majority of people, unless you are a power lifter, you could probably put all of your squatting with that heel elevation and it would encourage vertical displacement. I think just doing those things alone would be really useful for people. And then with you go ahead. This, this is actually very interesting. So I've been looking a lot into force plates recently and um, 
how pro coaches are kind of, I had Rob Campbell on from the Red Wings the other day and we were talking about bucketing people into uh, groups that either need in their training eccentric braking forces or concentric propulsive forces. And um, one of the things we talked about was load placement dictating that. And that really resonates with me because you were talking about the Zercher and that front loaded movement is obviously going to increase the amount of eccentric braking we have there. And, and I, I think that kind of lines up with what we're talking about here in an inhalation based strategy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, I mean, eccentric braking is an eccentric strategy, which is inhalation mechanics. Yeah. And, you know, let's look at, let's look at a jump, for example. What's the most common compensatory thing you might see when someone does a vertical jump? Um, what are we looking at here? Like, I guess like an excessive amount of valgus might be one debatable whether or not it is, but we, we will see the knees collapse a lot of times. So, yeah. 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 I think that's the easiest thing. Knees collapse. Why do the knees collapse? Well, if the pelvis is dumped forward into an anterior tilt and you shoot your hips backwards, the, due to the position that the acetabulum falls into, that's going to be internal rotation. And so what you run into is an inability to create that eccentric braking mechanism when you jump. And I use this um, example with a guy who I'm working with, an ex-NBA guy. If I were to take a bouncy ball and I wanted the bouncy ball to jump up as high as, or hit, go towards the sky as high as possible, I need to throw it straight down, not backwards, in order for that to happen. <laughs> Yeah. Well, imagine that the same mechanics apply to the pelvis. If I want to be able to do more concentric or explosive work, I have to have that braking mechanism in place. And that's where vertical displacement of the pelvis in the case of a jump would come into play. Um, so I think most people, even if they need more of that explosive work, it still is probably a prudent move to really hammer down the, the eccentric uh, breaking phase because even if someone can't produce force, they still probably aren't very good at absorbing force to begin with. This, this ties beautifully into just the concept of uh, joint centration as well. Like, I mean, again, if we're not, if we're already at an end range and then trying to extend into a further end range that is not there, I mean, that's gotta be a leak of force output, you know? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, any, anytime your, your body can't assume all the contractile possibilities that it should, there's going to be some type of compensatory action that's happening. Yeah, no, this is, this is all clicking very well for me. I like, I like this a lot. Um, this is, this is solid stuff. Um, so I, so really this is great. Cause I mean, I, I think anyone that's in a large, like a large facility or with a large amount of people, these are very actionable strategies. Now I will ask one thing I did in the military with our guys was, um, do a little bit of like a 90, 90 hip lift or an all fours, uh, you know, position, like something very basic, almost to, to, I almost was thinking of like as potentiating a little bit of posterior pelvic tilt for them before we went into like, for example, a, we did a lot of like double kettlebell front squatting with the heels elevated. Um, you know, they, they always have to have more weight. It's very important to them. So, <laughs> um, um of course. Uh, you know, things like that. So like, are, are those, useful things you think to implement um or are they kind of like maybe just those filler exercises that we don't need to waste our time on so much in that setting i think um there's benefits in 
costs to those both of those moves that you mentioned. So like the 90-90 hip lift or Lewitt or whatever you want to call it, um, it's a really good position to teach tucking. But if you look at the degree of hip flexion that you're performing both of those moves, um, there's actually more internal rotation oh. drive at that range. Because at, at about 90 to 100 degrees of hip flexion, that is where the, the external rotators of the hip actually get leveraged to be more internal rotators. Yes. Um, maximally. And that, that starts, you know, depending on what study you read and who you're working with, somewhere between 45 to 60 degrees of hip flexion, that shift begins and then it tops out at that position. So if your goal is to drive inhalation mechanics, you're probably better off choosing positions either that are below that range, so in the 60 degree range, or significantly above. And that's where like a drunken turtle is useful. Or even doing higher depth squats on a wall would be useful in that sense. Um, the, the issue with all fours, well, I think it's, it's a good move, is if you have someone who has more of an exhalation or concentric bias, in their upper back to begin with, it can actually reinforce it for the same reasons. The um, degrees that I had mentioned in hip flexion, and, and when we're talking about internal rotation or, or posterior compression of the pelvis really, apply also into the arms. So at 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, which the quadruped position or all fours would have, based on what the scapula is doing, you would have increased concentric activity in the upper back which would limit expansion there which if the goal is to get a full squat or drive maximal inhalation um, those positions would not help with that that makes a ton so, of sense yeah and, yeah so like your your um, powerlifting bros or maybe some of your military guys who are a bit more on the the muscular side they might actually not do well with those positions so what could be good with those positions would be like a, a side plank variation with the hips in, in a bit more flexion, but not to the degree of 90 degrees. That actually might be good for that group. Um, you could do drunk, I think drunken turtle yeah. is a fail safe. Um, <laughs> but if you wanted to teach like a basic breathing position, I would either look into like a higher depth squat you could do the 90-90 position, but change the degree of hip flexion. So maybe you're doing like a 120-120 or a 60-60. Yeah. Um, those could be useful for teaching that stacked position. You could do a um, like a quadruped position, but maybe you're going to – I like a, like a decline quadruped where I'm on forearms and I've elevated the – the hips, so the hips are significantly higher than the thorax. So maybe using a couple of Eric's pads or couch cushions. Oh, and that's at home. that's using gravity, kind of to. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it helps. It would help fill the thorax easier. Yes, and then just change the degree of hip flexion that you have to manipulate whether you want more of an inhalation bias or exhalation bias. Then th this is exactly what you're talking about the other day on your movement debrief, with just squat depth with degrees of hip flexion based on whether someone is inhalation or exhalation biased. Actually, can you just kind of go into that very quickly, like those box squat variations um, that you were referencing yeah. there? Yeah. 
Yeah. So with, if you wanted to drive inhalation bias, your squat should either be high depth or they should be way low depth. If you're in the mid zone, then it, it's a little bit, it becomes a little bit more hingy in, in nature. Um, which is why, like, why are powerlifting squats to parallel or why are box squats usually to parallel? It's because it creates that, that more exhalation or concentric bias. Mm -hmm. So when I'm coaching someone on squatting, I will either keep the depth high or I'll keep the depth really low if the goal is to improve inhalation mechanics. Um, so th and that's basically the long and the short of it. The, now, the same principle applies to the upper body. If I'm doing any type of pressing, pressing or reaching work, same thing. Either reach them low or reach them high if they need more inhalation mechanics. Um, you know, zero to 60 and then 120 to 180 are going to improve upon your ability to expand into the upper back or stretch the upper back. Anything in the mid range, so like a bench press or any type of forward pressing is going to create more compressive action in, in the upper back. Uh, so I think if you can stick to those extremes, high or low, uh, you're, you're going to more often than not improve someone's movement quality and capabilities. And that's the name of the game then for this inhalation strategy. You want to open up the thorax posteriorly to get some air in there. Is that kind of one of the big, the big things you're looking at? Yeah. So when, when I'm talking about inhalation, like the reference point, because when you breathe in, the front of the chest should expand and all that. But the reference point is the spine. And there are certain movements that should happen at the spine when I breathe in versus breathing out. And when I meant, when I say inhalation mechanics within the spine, that's what I'm referring to. Um, anything that gets air into the front side of the body, if I want to really drive air into the front or I really want to drive opening or movements in, on the front side of the pelvis, I have to, by nature, have compressive action happening on the back side of the body to drive air maximally. And, and that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying inhalation, exhalation mechanics. Okay. Um, most people need more inhalation mechanics in the spine. Okay. No, that makes, that makes total sense, man. This has been great. I really appreciate it, Zach. Um, I try to try to keep them under an hour, both for, for your sanity and then the so listeners listen. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but um, any, anything else, like any takeaway or any parting shots on this for strength and conditioning coaches that you think might be useful, maybe some, maybe a resource or two or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm biased, of course, but um, I think my Human Matrix Foundations class, if, you, if you're listening to this and you're like, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> That's a, a free course that I have on my website, ZachCouples.com, that will go into a lot of the relevant anatomy and things like that in order to best apply these concepts. And then I, I have a common compensations workbook that's part of my newsletter where you can look at a lot of the movements that you're already coaching squat deadlift all that and it it categorizes them the compensations that we all see into into these two buckets i think that's really a good starting point for most people and the cool thing is as a coach you don't have to change much of what you're doing you just have to look at what you're doing differently in order to apply these concepts and I, I think applying these concepts is really worthwhile because I've, I've had a lot of people who have coached the squat in the way that I'm talking about on this podcast to get 
actually start to feel quads and get, get smoked. And, and I'm talking about well-trained individuals. Um, so I, I think it is worthwhile. And I've seen a lot of good changes from, from a performance aspect by doing this. So uh, if, you're, if your program is working on just the same qualities over and over again, then you're only going to get better to the extent that those having those qualities in your, in your repertoire is going to help you get better. No, that's beautiful, man. Where, where can the people find you? And then anything you want to plug your socials, human matrix courses, whatever it is, uh, have at it. Yeah, sure. So, uh, zackcouples.com is probably the best place to find me. Um, that's where I spend most of my time. That's where all my blogs are access to my show. The or Zach couple show and movement debriefs are there. Um, I have a lot of services available on that site and, access to whenever the apocalypse is over my human matrix seminar is is all across the u.s um so please check me out there but if you are unsure how to um apply this with your people or you want to you want to kind of feel it for yourself like like i did with you jack um, i offer movement consultations to help people take them through these movements uh, I, I can apply that in a training concept with online training and also i i do mentoring so we could we can see how this applies with your specific population. And Jack, just because I like you so much, if y'all are listening in and you want to work with me, I'll offer a 10% discount. Just tell me Jack sent. Just say Jack sent me. Uh, I'm going to limit these till we'll say June 1st. <laughs> You're on the clock. So if you, <laughs> if you reach out to me and you say Jack sent me, I'll give you a 10% discount just because I love you, fam. Well, maybe I'll make him answer a trivia question too. Like what producer do you feel you Zach or does Zach feel is most like himself? If they don't answer Jay Dilla, we know they didn't listen to the whole show. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be, if I could even get like one, a one hundredth of Jay Dilla, I'd be happy. <laughs> Dude, Zach, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate the time. Um, best of luck in your, uh, your endeavors in Vegas. And, uh, Hopefully, uh, we will officially cross paths sometime soon. So, I hope so too, Jeff. Thank you, man. Appreciate it.